All right, morning again. Hey, we are in right in the middle of a three-week teaching series called Exiles, Pilgrims, and Ambassadors. And for these three weeks, we're looking at three unique Christian identities that we all have about how we kind of should uniquely interact with the world around us as Christian believers. Uh, this morning, we're looking at the second identity, which is uh, pilgrims. And I think kind of like we had to do uh, last week with the word exiles, we need to undo or at least expand our definition of the word pilgrim. Because when I say the word pilgrim, what comes to mind for you? <coughs> like Thanksgiving, right? Um, which, uh, speaking of, by the way, you know, one of the things that we tell children is that April showers bring May flowers, but do you know what May flowers bring? Pilgrims. Pilgrims. (laughs) Thank you to the person who just laughed. Uh, You can use that later if you'd like. Uh, Now, in a way, there are some parallels between the pilgrims of Thanksgiving uh, and what the Bible means by the concept of a pilgrim. Here's a basic definition for you for pilgrim. A pilgrim is a person who goes on a long and often difficult journey to a religious place. That's, that's what a pilgrim is. Now, the pilgrims that we're all thinking of, of 1620, that fled England and then Holland and came over to Plymouth Rock, they came because they wanted to be free from the state church. They wanted to practice their Christianity as the Bible instructed them to. And so they came here to freely do that. And so there are some similarities there in the definition. You know, another way to sort of broaden and think of the word pilgrim is when people go on a religious pilgrimage, right? Uh, You can see examples of that even in the Old and New Testaments. So the Jews had to go on three pilgrimages to Jerusalem every year, like for special events like Passover. So wherever they were, they would go on a long, difficult journey to a religious place, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, for that festival. And essentially, they were pilgrims as they went. And the New Testament makes this case that not only are followers of Christ exiles here in the culture, but we are also pilgrims on a journey to another land, our true homeland, which is heaven. Okay, let's take a look at what the Bible says about this. So everybody grab a Bible. Uh, Some of you bring your own. If you don't have one, there's a Bible under the chair in front of you. We're going to really just dive into this today, so I want you to have it out. We're going to be on page 823 on the Bibles that are here. And we will be in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, this is a real famous chapter from the Bible. It's a, a chapter about some of the heroes of faith of the Old Testament. And so far in the chapter, uh, this, this chapter has referenced a Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and their great faith that they had on earth. And now we're going to join the passage uh, right after they've talked about those people. So Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we are in verse 13. Here's what it says. It says, all these people, so these great, amazing believers from the past, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Okay, let's start talking through this uh, wonderful passage. And just as we talked last week about how to live as exiles, I want to talk this week on how to live as pilgrims. Uh, Here's the first point if you're taking notes. So number one, how to live as a pilgrim? Number one is admit you're a pilgrim. Did you see that word admit? 
in verse 13. A lot of people, we just skip right over that. But essentially, the Christian believer is to admit, to say, okay, I know hardly anybody in our culture is living like this, but I'm going to admit that this world is not my home. I admit it. I'm just a pilgrim here. Or, or look to the very end of verse 13, if you still have it on your lap. The writer says that these faithful believers, that they admitted that they were foreigners, that's the same type of word as an exile, and then also he says strangers. Now, actually in most translations, that word stranger is translated sojourner, uh, which is the same idea, and in a number of translations is actually translated the word pilgrim. Whether you use uh, stranger, sojourner, pilgrim, it's all the exact same idea. It's talking about someone who is just temporarily in another land because, as we see on this passage, they're on a journey to a different country. And that is actually how the Christian is to see their life here on earth, that we're on a journey, and all of us as believers, our journey starts here with a very, very quick stop on earth, and then it continues in the heavenly country. We are pilgrims here. But see, the faith that we are actually walking towards a heavenly country is sometimes easier said than done. So let's look at verse 13 another time. So it says they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. Or at the very start of the verse, it just simply says they died while they were still in their faith. And so they believed that they were journeying towards this greater thing. They got a small taste of it at times, but they didn't actually fully experience it here on earth, right? And so it took faith for them to admit, I'm a pilgrim on a journey to a better country. Now, this biblical topic of pilgrims makes me think of what is actually the best-selling book of all time out of all the books that were originally written in English. You know what that is? It's The Pilgrim's Progress uh, by John Bunyan. Uh, If you've never read The Pilgrim's Progress before, let me highly recommend to you the children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, the original book was written in 1678, and so the style of English is really quite difficult, if not impossible. In fact, I had a conversation here this week with uh, Pastor Josh, and both of us had talked about how at one time in our lives we had started Pilgrim's Progress and quit halfway through. Because it's just, it's, you know, it's essentially Shakespearean English. It's incredibly difficult. I'm sure you could do it, but I thought it was hard. But the modern-day kids' version is amazing. Okay, I actually mentioned this book in my reading list that I sent out to all of you uh, just a a few weeks ago. It's a a book called uh, The Little Pilgrim's Big Journey. It is fantastic. I actually brought it with today. It's out on the lobby table. If you just want to page through it, take a picture of it, order it on Amazon. I love this book. Honestly, I think about the images from this book in my own faith uh, almost every week. Not, Not joking. Uh, if you're, it's, a, it's a, like a 200-page picture book. It's amazing. Uh, if you don't like picture books, uh, there's a chapter book I would recommend to you if you want to write this down or take a picture. It's called Little Pilgrim's Progress by Helen Taylor. Again, just ignore the little... It's, you might think, oh, it's for kids. No, it's for people who don't read Shakespearean English, okay? So this is a chapter book that's a, f- a few hundred pages. It's on Audible as well if you do audiobooks. It's also an amazing book. But the basic premise of Pilgrim's Progress, if you've never read it or you're not that familiar with it, is there's a man named Christian. And at the very beginning of the book, Christian discovers a book. And in this book, he learns that there's this wonderful, glorious place called the Celestial City, which is an allegory of heaven. 
And as he reads about the celestial city, he becomes convinced of two things. That, number one, he must leave the city that he's lived in his whole life. And the city is called the city of destruction. And number two, Christian becomes convinced that he needs to find a way to rid himself of this enormous burden that's on his back that he's now just discovered once he started reading the book, which is like the Bible. And he realized there's this burden of sin on his back. And then the story is this allegorical story of his faith as he experiences forgiveness and then goes on this really, really long journey as a pilgrim towards his final destination of the celestial city or heaven. And all the people that he encounters along the way and all the places that he goes through are allegorical representations of the things that we encounter in our own temptations and obstacles in our pilgrimage of of life. Uh, In fact, my hero, uh, Charles Spurgeon, read The Pilgrim's Progress over 100 times before he died. That's how amazing this book is, uh, if you can actually read Old English. But again, kid's version. Okay, one of the things that really jumps out at you, even in the early pages of The Pilgrim's Progress, is that Christian, the main character, is mocked mercilessly when he decides he's going to leave his hometown, the city of destruction, and become a pilgrim. They mock him. And why? It's because if you truly admit that you're a pilgrim, and that this life is incredibly short, and so therefore your main aim is to follow Christ and get others to follow Christ and leave the city of destruction, that admission is going to affect how you live your life. It's going to affect what you talk about. It's going to affect how you spend your time. It's going to affect how you spend your money. And a lot of people, quite frankly, are going to think you're quite weird, maybe even crazy, for identifying as a pilgrim with a focus on the next world. Okay, point number one, admit that you're a pilgrim. Easier said than done. Here's point number two of how to live as a pilgrim. Keep looking forward. The the true pilgrim keeps their eyes on the prize, looking ever forward towards heaven, towards this amazing glory that awaits us when we get to see God face to face. Our fellow pilgrim, the Apostle Paul, uh, once wrote about it this way in Philippians chapter 3. He said, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And then you see this sort of same sentiment in our passage. This is verses 14 and 15. The writer of Hebrews says, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. In other words, they would have been looking backwards. And when, as a pilgrim, you're on a journey towards heaven, on a journey towards the promised land, sometimes it's difficult to keep looking ahead. The temptation is the same temptation that plagued the Israelites so often in the Old Testament. And so when you read through the book of Exodus or in Numbers, one of the things that you see is the Israelites, they're delivered from slavery in Egypt. And God's leading them through the desert towards the promised land. And this pilgrim's journey through the desert was incredibly difficult. And so what happened was they kept in their difficulty, in their hardship, they kept looking backwards. And they would say, so many times they'd say, oh, but seriously, wasn't the food amazing in Egypt? It was just, do you remember what we used to eat? And their leaders had to constantly remind them, you were a slave. Sure, the food might have been good, but you were a slave. 
pilgrims on a journey are to keep looking forward, to keep seeking the heavenly country. As the very next chapter of Hebrews says, we are to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And I would ask you, where are your eyes this morning? What are you focused on? What are you fixed on? Because this world is going to try and draw you back in. But how does the Christian avoid it? How does the pilgrim avoid it? They refocus their eyes to where they are going. They look forward, not backwards. Verse 15 tells us that the reason the pilgrim marches towards heaven is because their mind is there. It's not on earth. Colossians 3.2 says, set your mind on what? On things above. I think again, of the Pilgrim's Progress. Actually, one of my favorite parts in the book is the main character, Christian. He's tempted in so many different ways by so many different people to go back. They're always trying to tell him to give up and just go back to the city of destruction. Don't do this Pilgrim's journey, this Pilgrim's Progress, right? And one time, he's facing this incredibly great enemy who's sort of an allegorical representation of the devil. And Christian is tempted. He thinks in his mind, maybe I should just run back. And he reasons himself out of it by saying, oh, there's no armor for my back. And so he presses on toward the fight using the armor that had been given to him. And it's kind of a fascinating allegory because if you study the armor of God passage in Ephesians chapter six, one of the things that you see is there is no armor for your back. And so don't run back to the world. It cannot satisfy you, especially once you've begun to get a taste of eternity. And this leads us really to our third point for how to live as a pilgrim. Point number three is this. Remember, your destination, where you are going, is so much better than where we are right now. And this is the truth we find in in the beginning of verse 16 in our passage. So here's what it says. It says, instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. They longed for it. See, I believe that Christians not only should study what the Bible teaches about heaven and the new heaven and the new earth, but we should pray about it. We should sing about it. We should dream about it. We should put our minds there. Set your mind. Let your mind sometimes, especially in the struggle, go to the fact that one day you are going to be with God and his glory, and it's going to be far better than this place. You'll be in his presence. All your suffering will be over. His city will be glorious. And there we'll get to know, we'll get to experience true love and joy and peace and patience. And we get that in doses now, right? We get a taste of it, but we'll get to experience it in its fullness. And when we rightly remember that we are pilgrims and that the place that we're going to far exceeds where we are today, then I think as people, we can let go of this idea that we're supposed to find all of life's fulfillments here in the desert. And I think that is, in many ways, a greater temptation for humans than ever before in human history. Let me give you an example of this. I, so I, I, I love to read. I, uh, my favorite genre is biographies. And for whatever reason, over the last three or four years, I feel like I've read a lot of biographies of people who lived in the 1800s. 
And if you read about someone's life in that time, or and certainly before that, one of the things that is in every single book is the family inevitably uh, loses one, two, sometimes even three or four children to childhood diseases. That was life in the 1800s. Sometimes fathers would die young, mothers would often die in childbirth. Poverty was extremely common. Many people were just struggling just to stay warm. I mean, there's no sanitation system, and on and on and on. And so nobody in those days, now they have their own problems of sin and idols, but nobody in those days was looking out at the harsh world and saying, you, world, I just look at you and I think, I can get all of my pleasure and satisfaction and happiness from you. Right? Nobody thought that. They're like, I'm just hoping to make it to 25. Right? It's a different sort of life. And it was so much, therefore it was so much more obvious to people in those days, 200 years ago, that this world that we're living in is a temporary world on the way to a more permanent one. Does that make sense? There was an intuitiveness to that, to them, 200 years ago. But in present day, we are living really in some of the first generations of history where people actually believe and even expect to find happiness, satisfaction, and fulfillment from this life here on earth. But if you're looking to find some of your deepest sense of meaning through your income, through your career or your family, you're not going to find ultimate satisfaction here. Because you weren't promised to find your deepest desires fulfilled in the desert but in the promised land. Uh, The great C.S. Lewis once explained it this way. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death." And so I think the question for all of us is, are you looking? If you really think about your life and what you're thinking, what your mind is always thinking, okay, this is what I gotta do next. Are you looking to have all of your desires fulfilled on this earth? Because if you are, what you will eventually meet instead is despair. And so many do. They try and suck the life out of this world. It doesn't happen. They get spiraled into depression instead because the world isn't giving them what they thought it should. You know, I don't know about you, but I feel like, maybe it's just a season that we're in, I feel like there's somebody that I know or somebody I once knew who's committing suicide almost every other week now. Anybody else feel like that's just been our world like the last six months? Listen to me, if, if you can hear my voice right now and you are at your wit's end, I want you to hear truth from God's word. You, if you're looking at this life and going, it's not satisfying me, 
I want you to know you weren't meant to find your deepest sense of satisfaction through the pleasures and the people of this world. That's not how God made you. I think of the, the woman at the well in the, in the Gospel of John. She's this, this, this woman had already been married five times. She's trying to find her pleasure and satisfaction through the lusts of the world. And Jesus meets her, and he tells her that if she would only drink from the living water that he offers, then she wouldn't have to keep going thirsty. And see, it's in following Jesus Christ, it's in following the Son of God that you begin to taste what life is really about. And while that taste is amazing, still we know as a pilgrim what is to come is even greater. Okay, let's, let's look to the very last part of the passage. This is the end of verse 16. It says, therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so for those who have trusted in God, for those that are walking towards them, God has prepared a city for you. John 14 says God is preparing, is preparing a specific place for you in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Walk towards it. But I beg, I beg of every single person in this room, please remember that life is short. I actually feel like that's one of my main jobs as a Bible teacher in America. That my job, you're, we get so focused on everything else, my job as you come to church is just to remind you, hey, hello, hello, teacher of the scriptures here, your life is so short. The great pastor and thinker Martin Lloyd-Jones, Lloyd-Jones once explained it this way. He says, the moment a man realizes that he is only a pilgrim in this world, that finally he has to die and to face God, and that there is all eternity before him, his whole outlook on life changes, if you realize it. But if you fall in with the rest of America, right, and you just get into the rat race with everybody else, and you spend the first part of your life just thinking, oh, I gotta do well in school, and I'll work really, really hard on that so I can get into a good school, and then I'll work really, really hard in school so I can get a good job, and then I'll make sure I get married, and I'll make sure I have kids, and my kids turn out, and I gotta get them to sports and activities so they can turn out, and I gotta work really hard, and I gotta be fit at the same time, and I gotta be successful, and you're just always thinking about that. You will lose sight of the most important questions in life. We did an entire, years ago, some of you were here then, we did an entire teaching series in this church called The Rope. I don't know if you remember this, I had, I had a humongously long rope. It was over 100 feet, this big white rope. And we, we, we had it on stage. I'd, I would have brought it for you today, but I, we, I brought it to Africa, and I left it with a pastor there. But essentially, you can imagine, because you have a great imagination, it was a rope, and we had to basically go out down the aisle, sort of out the door, and I said, just imagine that this rope represents the timeline of your existence. And imagine that not only does it go out the door, it goes out the lobby, out the parking lot, out the city of Blaine, and it goes on and on and on. And it was a white rope, and there was just a little part about this big that was colored red. I said, if this is a timeline of your existence, this whole thing, this little, little red part represents your life on earth. And then everything after that, on and on and on and on and on and on, represents your life in eternity, in either heaven or in hell. That is the true, that's the truth of your existence. And how often do we even think about that? For a lot of us, it's not often. But when you think about the truth, when you think about your existence that way, then the question of, am I right with God? If life is just this, and then billions of years somewhere else, 
the question of am I right with God actually is the most serious and the most important question of your life, right? I just don't even know how you could disagree with that. Am I right with God? And because all of us, we have sinned. We have sinned against God, a holy God. And that sin keeps us out of heaven because God, his heavenly country, it's perfect. Sin is not allowed there to taint it. We must be forgiven by God if we are to enter. And we gain forgiveness, the Bible teaches us, by believing in his son, Jesus Christ, by specifically believing that God loves you so much, so much, that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins. He was taking the punishment for your sins. And your faith in that takes the punishment off of you and onto Jesus, which allows you to be forgiven to have your sins wiped clean. So not only can you start a relationship with Jesus where he will guide you on this pilgrimage of life, but that you can have eternal life for on and on and on and on and on with God in heaven because of your faith that he sent Jesus to be your savior and because you're letting him be the leader of your life. Have you made that decision to let Jesus die for you and to let him be your savior and your leader? That's 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 the most important question of life. Have you made that decision? In fact, let's just, just for a minute, let's just close our eyes. Because maybe you're just hearing about it for the first time, or maybe you've been hearing about it six weeks in a row, and you've been thinking, I gotta make this decision. If you're here this morning, and you wanna be forgiven, you wanna be made right with God, you wanna start following him, this is how you do it. You say, yes, Lord, I believe that you died for me and I want to follow you and he will forgive you and he will come into your life and it would be such an amazing thing. And you can make that decision right now. I want to give you just sort of a line in the sand moment. If that's you and you need to believe for the first time to be made right with God, to be forgiven, to follow him, you want to do that for the first time this morning, what I want you to do, everyone has their eyes closed, but what I want you to do is just raise your hand up to God and say, that's me. I, I want to be forgiven. I want to follow you. Will you forgive me? Jesus and come into my life. All right, amen. Anyone else where you're like, you for the first time, you're going, I, I need this, God. If that's you, would you just raise your hand up to him? Anyone else? I'll give you about five seconds or so if you want to join them. Anyone else who are saying, yeah, that's, I need this, God. Okay. You can put your hands down for anyone who said, yeah, this is me. I, I, I do need to start following you, God. If you did that today, we want to pray with you. The Bible says when you get to this point in your life that we confess with our mouths and we believe in our hearts. And so I'm going to pray. And what I want you to do is I actually want you to pray out loud with me, whether you just made this decision and raised your hand or you've believed this for much of your life. Would you just pray this prayer from your heart after me? Just repeat after me. Dear God, I confess to you that I have sinned against you. But God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take my place. And God, I thank you for forgiving my sins. And now I commit to following you with my life. Amen. Hey, if you raised your hand this morning, I believe that you, as as I was just saying, that you made the most important decision of your life. 
And if you made that decision, what I want to do is I want to help you just for two or three minutes know, okay, what do I do with that? Because the last thing that you want to do is say, yes, I'm giving my life to you, and then not know what to do, or not know what to do next, and then just go on with life as normal. That's not what we want for you. So what I want is, in a second, I'm going to pray. Our band's going to come up here for a final song. And as I pray, and everyone kind of has their eyes closed, what I want you to do is actually just kind of sneak out into the lobby. I will be out there. Some people will meet you right when you walk out. And I'm just going to talk with you for just a couple minutes. I'll give you some resources so you know what to do next. And then you'll be able to sneak right back into your seat. So it doesn't take very much, but it's a critical step so you know, okay, what do I do next? Does that sound okay? All right. Uh, let me pray. And as I pray, you can uh, kind of sneak out. And we'll, I'll, I'll meet you out there in just a second. Lord, thank you so much uh, for just your truth. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would remind all of us that this life is short. It's so, so easy to get distracted and start living for the things of this earth. But God, remind us that we are pilgrims here and you are leading us to a far better country. It's in your amazing name we pray. Amen.